Mighty God and everlasting Father, we thank you that you hear us, that you never turn a deaf ear to us, that you are always near us, and that you always attend your word, that it might be to your glory, that it would never return to you void, that it would never come back to you without accomplishing its purpose, and it always is bringing us one step closer either to heaven or to hell. We ask, O God, that you would illuminate us Illuminate our minds and hearts as we go over your word this morning and as we look at masters and slaves and how this applies to us, O God. We also ask that you would aid in the preaching of the word, that it would be with unction and power, and the hearing of the word, that it would be with profit in every way, that Christ might be glorified as he is the living word. So we look to him to minister to us through the power of the Holy Spirit this morning through these passages, through these verses, through these words that you have inspired for us, carrying along the Apostle Paul to write these down for our benefit. And we so ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read together. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Bond servants... Be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service, as men-pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. May God bless the reading of his word to us. Now, this is an interesting shift that we have to make in what we're dealing with. We've been dealing with biblical reformation as it applies to the family, and we hit this particular point in Paul's thought, and we have to finish out this passage, because it is connected to the family, and it has to do with the family. Yet, because we live in a bit of a different society than they lived in in their day, it has some different connotations to us, which is why previous, when I was talking about some of the things that we were going to cover in the series, we were also going to cover the religious tradesmen, or the Reformed Christian in the workplace, and how that works, well, this passage actually deals in particular to that idea. In the old days, in Paul's day, the idea behind this passage had to do with the house, because a master would have slaves in the house, and that slave would be part of the family. And the master would have to think that way about that slave. There are certain things that the Romans would have thought about concerning slaves, that they were simply there for their profit, that they were, in fact, slaves in the most debased form of the word. But Paul is writing here from chapter 5 and verse 22 all the way to the end of the chapter where we just read about the family and how this before God is a demonstration of submission to one another. So the reformation of the family not only consists in the relationship of the husband to the wife, and the parents to the children, but also the way that the federal head of the home is dealing with the slaves that he has in the home. There are certain things to be done. For us, it's going to shift a bit. It's going to give us some principles to think about the workplace and how masters and slaves work in that context because we don't own slaves today. I don't have anybody in my house that is a slave and uh, our society functions a little bit differently in that respect. But the principles are still the same, which are actually very eye-opening. So let's begin with Ephesians 6 and verse 5, where it says, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Now, the same thing that he's done with husbands and wives, and ma- uh, uh, parents and children, he's doing also with slaves and masters. Um, They have to follow their masters as if they're following Christ. Just as the children do, just as the wives do, just as the federal husband is before Christ. And this title, servants, is a universal title. Those people who 
have any outward household, civil, or uh, societal right as under another. They are set in the context of being a slave or a servant who owes their service to someone else. So there's no exceptions here. Anybody who owes service to another, um, there aren't any loopholes. Everybody in some way owes service to another, even those who are the masters, which we'll talk about in a moment. Inferiors owe obedience to superiors. And so Paul places slaves and masters under the family because homes in those days always had slaves or you were a slave in one way or another. Even Paul is a bondservant or slave of Christ. But in every case, in every job, the extension of the master and the slave relationship moves to the employer or employee relationship on any task. So we're going to see that these things have a direct connotation to our life and what we do in slaves and masters or employers and employees as we would call them today. The master is the one to whom service is owed. It's owed to him. It's owed by right. William Gouge says, the rule of servants as servants is the will of their master. Everything that servants should do is comprised in the word obey. Servants are to obey their masters. All tasks owed to the master by the servant, just as children obey their parents, masters are to have obedience rendered by those servants that are under them. And Paul says that they are to be obedient according to the flesh. As much as a master is according to the flesh, so is a slave. But the distinction here is in relationship to superiors. They are, according to their earthly masters, those men of the flesh, because Paul is making a distinction and a parallel between those who are fleshly, those are the physical guys that the slaves see that they owe obedience to, and the master who is in heaven, which is going to touch on in a moment, that he wants the slave to understand how they're supposed to act and who they're supposed to act to. That's why he'll add in a little bit eye service and men-pleasing, because to the eye we see the particular one that we owe obedience to, and Christ being in heaven, we don't necessarily see him that way, but Paul's going to correct our thinking in the manner that the slave is supposed to act towards the master, according to the flesh. How are they to do that? It says here, with fear and trembling. Fear is reverence, respect that is due to the master because of who he is. And trembling is with anxiety. Now, it's not the same anxiety that Jesus says, be anxious for nothing. It's not that anxiousness, but it's rather, the idea behind the word is that like a feeling as though they're unsure about their ability to perform the task as well as they would like to. That's the way that slaves are to have as a disposition in general to their masters. It also holds the idea of, will I be punished if I don't do this to the best of my ability or the way the master so desires it? So they are to do it in fear and in trembling. They're also to render this obedience that's due masters in sincerity of heart. And in sincerity of heart, the idea surrounding that is in truth and righteousness. Without any guile, without any hidden agenda, they're to complete the task with all sincereness in desiring to please their master. How? As to Christ. They are subject to masters as if they were subject to Jesus Christ. And... That's Paul's point. They are subject to Jesus Christ through the Master. The Master is the visible representation of Christ's authority for that particular slave. So even the universal uh, commandment in Colossians 3.23, and there are a number of them as we read them throughout the scriptures, or I'll quote some of them, but Colossians 3.23 says, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. So there's a universal precept that is for every single person, that is to do whatever they do as unto the Lord, not simply to men after the flesh. Paul's being very specific because we're dealing with slaves, that they are to render their obedience that's due according to duty to Christ, as if Christ was standing there. Their masters are 
a visible representation of Jesus. So then he says in verse 6, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. He repeats himself, but he adds in a couple of prohibitions. Because servants may have a hard time working for masters, Paul continues to expound their duty in particulars. So what he does is he lifts up hypocritical service. Eye service is hypocritical service. It's, a, it's just wrong to please men or be men pleasers as with eye service. Now what does he mean? When he says eye service, he's talking about that which is pretended to be done instead of done in sincerity. That's the first thing we have to take into account. Men, who, men or women who render service as slaves to masters and do it simply in the eye service of the master so that they can be seen are basically hypocrites. That's what hypocrites are. They're pretenders who pretend to do something and they look like they're working, but they're not really working in sincerity or in truth. Such service is done while the master is watching. And when he's not looking, they're not putting forth the effort as if he was watching. And that contradicts previously what Paul says as to Christ in the way that they are supposed to be, since God always sees everything that we do or that slaves do before masters. So they don't get an out. They don't get to work hard when the taskmaster is over them. And then when the taskmaster isn't there, they get to let off on the brake or let off on the steam because they're supposed to be working not after the flesh, but as if Christ was there. So God requires more than what men will require in that they are to work heartily before him, not simply with eye service. And what eye service does is eye service turns into man-pleasing. Man-pleasing really is, as we've talked about before in a different context, a secret atheism. It's where servants or employees are more apt to please men before they are apt to please God. They are more concerned with how they look in front of men than they are serving God. And that's what Paul's trying to correct. It's not simply that you're to work before the master that you see that gives you a specific task. So once he walks by that you start picking up the pace. Paul is saying that that's really a secret kind of atheism because you're a man pleaser. You're supposed to be working heartily before God, which means that no matter what time the master comes around, you're working at the same pace as before. You're not looking towards eye service or man-pleasing. Why is that? Because a slave is a slave of Christ first in this context, or bondservant of Christ. So to avoid committing such sins before God and their masters, slaves are exhorted to look to their masters, to Christ first, as though their masters are Christ himself standing there. Jesus knows everything. He's aware of everything. He providentially sets up all things. So we work as though Christ is there. So such service would not be for men first, but for God first. And that's why he says, from a right heart, from a sincerity of heart, or a motive to please God in everything that they're given to do. Look at verse 7. He says they're to do it with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. You figure the slaves would get it in the previous verse, but he repeats himself again, but with a different twist. The explanation carries with it an additional force or exhortation to those things. And the Greek word for service is readiness and cheerfulness in doing a thing. Doing it with good or right thoughts, with a good or right heart. Such a fulfillment of duty before masters is for their master's good and through a good mind on behalf of their masters, which is an interesting thought in the way that Paul places this here. We should be thinking of first, God, then second, our masters, and third, the motives and the manner in which we do all the work that we do. Look at verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. So here, there, this is a, like a, a read-between-the-lines verse. If masters are not fair, what if they're not fair? He doesn't say anything about being fair or not fair. He says, masters, for the sake of being masters, have the obedience due them from slaves. He doesn't say whether they're good masters or bad masters or anything. He hasn't got there yet. 
He's just talking about slaves. So if masters aren't fair or they're not rewarding as they should, the slave knows that such a reward is given from God, not directly from masters. And so ultimately he'll be recompensed. Ultimately he will gain a reward. And we'll talk about that in a moment as well. Then he makes a switch in verse 9. He makes a switch to the masters. And he summarizes for the masters what he said concerning the slaves because of a particular point. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. So the master is supposed to do everything that the slave does before Christ. The master is to think that Christ is there in the slave as if he's looking at Christ and is to treat him accordingly. Being a slave or being a master is not a good thing or a bad thing in and of itself. It's not like being a master is better than being a slave. That's Paul's point. The master has no ability, no right to threaten for service because one, the slave should be rendering obedience to him as if he's Christ. And two, he's supposed to be treating the slave in the right way, in a, in a proper way, in the same manner as the slave thinks he's Christ, so it's reversed. And the master is to look at his servants in the same way. Why? Because there's no partiality with God. God doesn't care if somebody's a king or servant. He doesn't care if he's a prince or a beggar. There's no partiality with God. Masters are addressed so that they will perform their duty, they have a duty to perform two slaves in a particular manner. Slaves have a due service by the very fact that their masters have responsibility over them. But they're required to work as unto the Lord as slaves are, knowing that Christ is their master, and they do as slaves. But the master's duties are set under the phrase, do the same things, good things, with sincerity of heart, with fear and trembling. All of those things that the slaves are supposed to do, the masters are supposed to do. Masters aren't allowed in that way to think that they're slaves simply for their own use and pleasure. Or employers are not to think that employees are there simply for their own use or to make them cash. Rather, they have a duty required of them to the employee or the slave. The master can't think that he's greater in some way as to being, as if his being as a master is greater than being a slave, or that... He is more worth than the slave. God appoints the work, the boundary of men, and masters have to understand that God has providentially placed them there. And regardless of what station they are, slave or master, there's no partiality with God. So the respect of persons is really the cause of much injustice and wrong that's done by masters to their servants. They're missing the idea overall that they are serving Christ, that the slave is to be Christ, to them, how would they treat Christ if he was to serve them? Now, there's a lot of things that we could pull out of this text. There are many things that we could talk about, but I, I just want to basically talk about the role of the, the slave or the employee and the role of the master or the employer. So here's the first doctrine that we're going to deal with. The reformed tradesman or slave owes obedience to his master as if to Christ, in sincerity of heart, and will be rewarded for his labor. Now, this is an interesting phrase that we can use, the Reformed tradesman. We could say it this way. Employees owe obedience to their bosses, as if to Christ, in sincerity of heart. If a household held slaves or servants, such would be the case. But that's why employment is set under the duty of the home, because society in Paul's day worked from the core of a family outwardly, which made up society. In our society, it's somewhat reversed. It's that society is what it is, and out of that it's made up of individual people who are part of families. And that's not the way we should be biblically thinking about how society works. But the hermeneutical application of these verses for the contemporary church, for us today, would more readily revolve around employees and employers. So that's what we're going to think about. Reformation in the American workplace in which we live is really in great need because working the least for the most money 
is really the great American dream in the way that we think about it. What can I do to do the least amount of work to make the most money in the workplace? Now, that is not what the scripture is talking about. How can I best take advantage of the other is really how the American workplace works. Christ expects the reformed employee to be spent not only for Christ and the vocation God providentially places them in, but for masters that they work for. That's what Paul was saying. Their interest should be the reformed tradesman's interest. The employer's interest is what the employee is out to accomplish. Employees owe obedience in the best interest of their masters as if they were employed by Christ. And God knows man's needs in society. That's why he is, you know, especially in a fallen world, he has so gifted men with a diversity of gifts that in any sphere or any arena or any place that they would work, um, God places them there. He gives them particular gifts to accomplish those tasks, and everyone who is capable of it should be constantly employed in some useful job throughout their life, whether as a slave or a master, as an employee or an employer. God had created us to work, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But the reformed tradesman, he owes obedience. It's the express command and appointment of God. Adam, before the fall, was placed in a state of action. We're not going to go to heaven and, like, hang out. That's not what eternity is going to be about. That's not what the original intention of God was. From the beginning, men are to obey God and all those in authority providentially over them. They were built to work. Men are built that way. Genesis 2.5 Before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. Right from the very beginning, God was going to create man to be in action before him in employment. The negative is to abstain from doing things of their own interest or without or against their master's consent or in a lazy way. The affirmative is readily to yield to do that which their masters or employers want them to do. To his master. So the reformed tradesman owes obedience to his master. Employers or masters have been providentially chosen by God to take up certain stations in his life as little sovereigns. They're sovereigns over a particular sphere of society. That's one of the attributes that men actually mimic or demonstrate that God ultimately and perfectly has in his sovereignty. Maybe they have a service. Maybe they sell a good. Whatever it is, God has placed them there and given them the gifts to make that job work to, for the good of society. That's why they're there. And they should be working that way. Employees then have an obligation to respect them for this work and render them due service for a fair wage. And they should be paid a fair wage. They treat their masters not as men, but as Christ. And they have to then guard their actions to be becoming Christ, and thus ultimately that renders their masters due service, without eye service and without men pleasing in fear and trembling. It's the way we're supposed to work before our masters. Eye service, man-pleasing, or laziness is opposite to obedience. And obedience is a duty owed, in particular, as a command. Proverbs is filled with stuff about lazy people not working. Proverbs 14.23 In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. Idleness is stealing. It's stealing from the master. It's stealing in regards to the commandment that Christ gives. By much slothfulness, the building decays, and through idleness of the hands, the house drops through. Ecclesiastes 10.18 Behold, this was the iniquity of Sodom, pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her. Ezekiel 16.49 Reject those distractions, and that would avert you from any kind of business that we're supposed to do as employees of employers, because laziness or hypocrisy in work is a violation of God's sovereignty. See, forget men. It's a violation of God's sovereignty, of the commandments, of the general obedience that is owed because of the command of Christ. Even after the fall, God still required men to work. 
but the sweat of his face to eat his bread until he should return into the dust. I don't hear anything in there of a retirement plan, although we'll talk about that in a moment. Until he should return to his dust, men work. Employees should never work simply to be seen for what they do because that ends up being pharisaical. They are to render obedience because of what God has given them in gifts and rendering it unto Christ as unto the Lord. Proverbs 18.16 is an excellent verse. A man's gifts make room for him and brings him before great men. So how God gifts you, it will bring you before great men. That's a promise, but it's a conditional promise. If you're lazy, then that won't come to pass. But if you're not lazy, exactly what happened in 1 Kings 11.28, the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor, and Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all the labor force in the house of Joseph. It was seen because of his gifts and that he utilized his gifts. The exercise of giftedness is glorifying to God in that way. Sometimes, in reality, sometimes being too gifted is a burden because you're doing your job to the best of your ability with all the multiple gifts that you have. People see that and they want you to do everything. But remember, ultimately, whatever our gifts are and whatever we do with our gifts, they will ultimately be rewarded by God for their use. But God's given them to us. He's given them to employees to exercise so the reformed tradesman should be the most diligent, respected worker in the workplace. The most diligent. Not obedience as good masters, but simply for the duty of office is what those employees do before the employers. You all know Scrooge and Bob Cratchit. Cratchit was diligent in his work, regardless of whether Scrooge was mean or not. He still did what he did. It diligently was done regardless of the circumstance. But Scrooge's disposition made the job easier hard. But that didn't require Bob Cratchit to work any less. And as a matter of fact, he was supposed to work in fear and in trembling before Scrooge both ways, simply for his duty as an employee of the employer. William Gouge says this in his work of domestical duties about employees or slaves. The other part of that fountain from whence the duties of servants flow rests in the affection. And it is in one word, fear, which is an awful dread of a master, and on regard of his master's place, a dread in regard of his master's power. And awe is such as a reverent esteem of his master. It makes him account his master worthy of all honor, which St. Paul expressly enjoins servants to do. A dread is such a fear of provoking his master's wrath as makes him think and cast every way of how to please him. This is it which the apostle here intimates under these two words, fear and trembling. So proper is this fear to a servant in relation to his master as where it is wanting. There is a plain denial of his master's place and power, which God intimates under this expostulation. If I be a master, where is my fear? He says that in Malachi 1.6. That is... You plainly show that you account me not your master, because in your heart there is no fear of me. So God is saying that the employees and the way that they simply look at their masters will drive them to a particular direction, in that if they really believe that their master is set there providentially of God, then they will work before him with fear and with trembling, not a slavish fear and not despising them, but with a reverence that is manifested in speech and action as to Christ. And as to Christ means it's done in the sincerity of heart. Richard Steele, in his book, The Religious Tradesman, says, Diligence, as it relates to trade, is a habitual employment of our bodily and mental powers about our proper calling, in a just and happy medium between idleness and lethargy, and trifling curiosity on one hand, and slavish drudging and immoderate care on the other. So in other words, he's taking what employees are to do before employers, and he's basically summarizing what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 31. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them 
likewise. If you were an employer, how would you want your employees to treat you? If you if one were to work before Christ standing over him, obviously they'd be pretty industrious. They'd be, Jesus would be standing there and the employee would do whatever the Lord wanted him to do. Paul's point in the passage is that all things done in sincerity of heart are to be done in truth and righteousness, not begrudgingly, and they're all done to Christ and on the best interest of the employer as it's accomplished. Because there is diligence and sincerity about the work that the employee has before Christ. And there's diligence and sincerity about the work itself, but what they're doing, because God's gifted them to do it. And there's diligence and sincerity about the best interests of the employer. And there's diligence and sincerity for the employee as a result of the reward, both temporary, because they're going to get their wages for doing the work, and eternally, because God is going to reward them. So the Christian employee should be excited to the practice of being industrious in everything he does because God's blessing is on the industrious worker. We could use Joseph as an example. Genesis 39 and verse 6. Thus he, that's Potiphar, left all that he had in Joseph's hand. Imagine that. A Hebrew slave. Second in command was Potiphar. And Potiphar placed everything he had in Joseph's hand. Why? Because Joseph was industrious. He was diligent. Genesis 39, 5. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house that all he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. As a matter of fact, when he tosses him in prison, the exact same thing happens again. Joseph, regardless of where he was, regardless of who his master was, he worked as unto the Lord. And so, as a result, everywhere he was, he was blessed. And the reformed tradesman will be rewarded for his labor, not only temporally, but eternally. Leviticus 19.13 says, You shall not cheat your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until the morning. So God places on masters the express command in many places, not only here, we'll read some others when we talk about masters, to pay the wages that are due every employee that they have. But not only this, but with even an expectation of future reward by Christ, is what the employee works for. Not just for what he puts in his pocket, but the wonderful face of Christ shining on him and all the rewards that he will receive in expectation in the future. So that drives him to work well. Let's look at the reformed master or employer for a moment. The reformed employer or master owes obedience to Christ in service as a lawful master to every employee or slave. Masters owe obedience to Christ in a more threatening manner, with more responsibility, to be reminded that Christ is their master. That's how Paul couches that command. Because employers are masters and hold sovereignty in that manner, so they are threatened with Christ being master over them. Employers are not better than employees, and they have been simply placed in a different providential sphere as a result of their gifts, and God's gifting them as leaders. Proverbs 28.21 says, To show partiality is not good, because for a piece of bread a man will transgress. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. That's how it is in the American workplace. And it's out there because of sin, not because of righteousness. So the manner in which the employer treats the employee is important. They can't threaten. They don't threaten to get work done. Because in doing so, they simply want work done. The same threatening that they unleash on their employees will be unleashed on them by Christ. They should be aware of their employees' gifts. And they should be cultivating their employee gifts, talents, wages, work, to use them most effectively and to render them a fair wage effectively. 
like employees can and often do. It's not about themselves. It's about their position before Christ. So thinking about how much an employer can get out of an employee for the cheapest rate is not becoming the Christian employer. As much as the reformed employee who is trying to do as little work as he can for the best price. That's Americanism and capitalism gone awry. Fair wages, fair treatment, fair exhortation to work, knowledge of the employee are a master's business because of his station as a result of God's providence. He's got to remember that God placed him in that position. Being a savvy businessman should be coupled with being a generous employer, with thoughts not simply of how much money the company can ultimately make, but how things are most glorifying to God. That's what the Christian employer should be thinking first and foremost. It's not for the employer, do everything I can to make a buck. It's not theirs anyway. It's not their buck. It's really God's buck and their stewardship of his buck. They're just stewards. It's the fair and respecting treatment of the employer to the employee before Christ that Paul is stressing. Remember, this whole passage is set in subjection to one another. Masters and slaves, employers and employees. Does the church see Jesus Christ as good? Of course they do. They look to Christ for everything. Then slaves should see masters as good. Employees should see employers as good. There should be no question as to motive of fairness. You know, the, the whole idea of being the savvy businessman who makes a shrewd dollar is thrown into the fire by this passage. Because the idea behind what Paul is saying is, first and foremost, employers should be out and looking at their employees like family. The context is the family. Imagine if that translated into the heart and mind of every boss that's out there over every employee. So we see that employees are to render service to their masters. Employers are to render service to their employees in a way that they are both ministering as if they're Christ. Now, in applying those two points to us, I think there's a couple of things that we should really pick up in the passage. Paul spent four times as long on employees than he did on employers. He wanted to make sure employees got it. We have to get it. The average American employee wants to work as little as possible for the most pay. And the average American employer wants to pay as little as possible for the most work. Both of those concepts are part of what constitutes the American dream. You can have it all with little effort and with as little as we can pay out or pay in. Only old-timey immigrants have those poverty stories, you know, where they came over on the boat with $3 in their pocket and they finally made it after all their hard work. We don't hear those stories anymore. It's shifted so much to this idea, working as little for the most or getting as much out of the employee without having to pay in anything or very little, from God's perspective, those two ideas are anti-biblical. They are against the scriptures from beginning to end. God says much on the worker being worthy of his wages and the difference between the diligent, industrious worker and the lazy, slothful beggar. So for employees, he talks a lot about that through all of the Bible. And so we should pick up on that. Those who want to work for... Uh, work little for much pay are the beggars of Proverbs. He who loves pleasure will be poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Proverbs 21.17. Proverbs 12.27. The lazy man does not roast what he took in hunting. But diligence is a man's precious possession. So, the employees have to be thinking that way. We have to be thinking that way in the way that we work before our masters, before our employers. We have to be thinking that we are diligent. And employers should be ashamed of themselves for attempting, in their own debased mind, to gain as much as they can while paying out as little as possible to workers who are worthy of their wages. They should never be taking advantage of their employees. Let's say an employer in a grocery store has two employees, one which is exceedingly gifted and the other not so gifted, but he's a friend of the owner. 
The friend is paid double what the gifted one's paid, and the gifted one is relied on more because of his gifts, because the employer can take advantage of his gifts. And yet he's paid less because the owner thinks, I'm a shrewd business owner who's smart with his money. I'm a better negotiator. And so, two faults he comes up with. There's two faults, two things that he's thinking wrongly. One, he's a steward of God's money and God's position that placed him in. And two, it's a form of extortion that he's doing. He's missing that idea right from the beginning. He's thinking about the dollar. And the dollar is not what God wants him to think about. So as much as the employee should be working rightly, so the employer should be taking some biblical lessons from Paul's exhortation. Christ is their master. And they should so set up fair wages for their employees that they should be taken care of. And they should treat inferiors as well as superiors as if they were treating Christ himself in that way. What would they pay Jesus for working in their grocery store? Would they extort him? Would they give the guy who doesn't have enough gifts or just because he's his friend more money than if he was going to pay Jesus Christ? Hmm. Another thing that we should note from the passage that we should apply to ourselves is that men should work. We should work. God has placed over us the command to work. Abel was a keeper of the sheep. Cain was a tiller of the ground. When the sun rises, they gather together and lie down in their den. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. Psalm 104, verse 22 and 23. God has placed us in positions where he wants us to work. He's given us gifts to do that. Working, ultimately, should give way to glorifying God in whatever we do, first and foremost. And, you know, you have some places in work environments where the Christian is thinking that he's there to witness to people, and that is not what God has placed him there to do. God has placed them there to work and to work in a way that's glorifying to him and that outward work will be a witness to others and maybe demonstrate that uh, in conversations at lunchtime or after work or so forth. But, you know, there are people even at uh, where, where I work that go around witnessing during work hours. That's a, that's a sin. That's stealing from the master. But those things will ultimately give way to winning other people over by seeing how they work. By doing that, it's actually being a reproach against them and their witness and Christ himself. Because people go, look, this lazy guy, all he wants to do is run around and talk about God. He doesn't want to work. Ephesians 4.28, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. So we ask ourselves, how good of an employee are we? How good of an employer are we? Are we industrious, reverent, working with fear towards our master as to Christ? Or are we after the dollar? Imagine reforming the workplace in this way. We would like totally revolutionize society if the workplace suddenly picked up on this. It, really, it did for Calvin and Luther. Do you know those two men affected capitalism in, in, in some of the largest and most amazing ways in reforming the work environment because of what the gospel teaches about being fair employers and employees? Honest business all around. Maybe we have a scornful master. Maybe we have a bad employer. But sovereignty doesn't discriminate because it's sovereignty alone that we're supposed to be working under. God has placed that employer over us. So it doesn't matter if we're working for Scrooge or not. We should be revolutionizing the workplace with our reformed mindset of what the scriptures speak concerning masters and slaves. And one can never forget that the way they treat their employers is how God will ultimately recompense them in this life and the life to come. How you treat your employer, you will be rewarded for now and later. Rewards for godly service. He will move employers to respect their employees by working well before your master. Just as he moved um, Asuras to recompense the faithfulness of Mordecai. Remember when the king gave him, uh, remember Haman led him through on the donkey, on the king's donkey, because he had done good for the king? It moved the king to do something good for Mordecai. 
if masters fail in these things, he will move strangers to recompense them. Even he moved the jailer to favor Joseph when his master had cast him into prison. And Pharaoh advanced him over Potiphar as a result. So even though Potiphar treated Joseph wrongly, he was blessed in the end. Sometimes God will draw the hearts of their employers more to them. God will make things which they labor in to prosper. He did this with Joseph and he did this with Abraham's servant. In dealing for themselves, he'll bless their work as he blessed Jacob's work. He will, when they come to have servants of their own or employees of their own, provide servants for them as they were to their masters. In Egypt, God blessed Joseph with a faithful servant. David who ventured his life to save his father's sheep, had many servants that ventured their lives for him. God will bless. And to, to the end of all of these kinds of blessings that God will give us is that great passage we've already read. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. We have to be thinking that way. Employees should be rendering their due as to Christ. Employers got to ask how good you are as well. You can work for yourself. You can work with many people under you. God is very strict with employers. He says in Luke 16:2. so he called and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. If you're a bad steward over the people that God has given you, you will be called into an account of that. If you're after the buck and you're not out for their good, you will be called into an account for that. Employers should be intimately aware of everything that goes on with their employees. Because Paul here is having house servants first in view. Members of the family. It's their stewardship. Stewardship on behalf of God implies knowledge on behalf of those people. They should be good stewards of them. And employers are bound to supply the temporary necessity of those employees as well as their future necessities. Did you know that? The whole idea of the 401k and that kind of thing, those are biblical ideas. Not only are employers to pay the current wages, but they are to plan for the employee's future because of the providential nature that God has given them. Deuteronomy 24:15. Each day you shall give him as his wages, and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor, and he has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord, and it be a sin to you. So if the employer doesn't pay him his due wages, it's a sin. And then, what about when Jacob says, when shall I provide for my own house? He said that to his master. His master was to provide for the future of Jacob's house. It's the master's duty. So the master has to say, or the employer has to say, am I too hard? Maybe I'm too soft. Maybe I let my employees be too lazy. Am I negligent? Am I ignorant? Am I too stingy? They have to remember that the laborer is worthy of his wages and treat them as such. They should be thinking that way. Throw out the American dream and pick up the biblical ideas of these passages. So the universal precept, the universal labor precept that we have from Paul, is expounded by Jesus, it's expounded in the Old Testament, it's expounded in the New Testament. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. That applies to slaves, that applies to masters. There's no excuse, one or the other. We have to reform the way we think about work and what God's intention is in putting us to work and creating us to work so that we can work rightly. In sincerity of heart, how? As to Christ. Let us be reminded of what he says in this passage as an employer and employees and may we affect our work environment for reformation. Let's pray together. Mighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that your Holy Spirit ministers to us through the Word of God. And pray, O oh God, that in this very large area of our life, we work every day. We go out to work. We look for work. We're trying, O oh God, to labor before you. We pray that you would provide us with suitable work, suitable to our gifts, and help us, O oh God, that as we work in whatever sphere we have, whether we're working independently, whether we work for another, or we have many people under us, pray that you would help us to be good employees and employers 
that we might work as unto you. That we might be thinking about these things as if we were ministering what we do to you. As if you were one of our slaves or you were one of our masters. Help us to be reminded of this passage and help us to glorify you in these things. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.